uh, the funeral dirge that would be the Mother's Day sermon this morning. This is what Revelation 18 is all about. Um, I do, I do hope that it will be strangely encouraging to you as we continue in our Revelation sermon series this Mother's Day, um, because it reminds us that so often when we approach Mother's Day, no doubt we, we feel the measure of guilt, the fact that we're not measuring up, the fact, the fact that we're not doing all that could be done. And uh, it just reminds us that we live in a fallen world where you will never measure up. And you will never all be all that your, your heart desires. And you will never be all that you desire. All, your children will never be all that you desire them to be. And our relationships with our mothers will never be all that they could be. And so I come to you this morning to remind you that this fallen world is passing away. And there is a greater identity for you than mother. There is a greater identity to live under than the reality of motherhood, as valuable and as precious as that identity is, and that is to be identified with the Lamb of God, to be in Jesus Christ. Mothers, if you are in Jesus Christ, your behavior is not ultimate. You are not defined by the behavior of your children. You're not defined by the opinions of others. You're not defined by the comments of your own mother. You're not defined by the advice of your friends. You're not defined by the images in the magazines. You're not defined by your messy house. You're not defined by the Photoshop life that you want on Pinterest. You're not defined by the happy pictures of everybody else's families on Facebook. You're not defined by the burned meal. You're not defined by the abandoned wardrobe. You're not defined as the worst mom on your street or in the church. You're not defined as being the joke of all the other moms at school. You're not the expectations of our overworked culture. You're not any of these things. If you're identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a child of the King. You're a co-inheritor of the kingdom of God. You're a branch that's been connected to the living vine. You've been justified by faith. You've been saved by God's grace. You've been redeemed from sin. You're no longer condemned. You're accepted in Christ. You're approved by the Father. You're a saint. You are one with Christ. You're approved as a new creature in Christ. You're righteous in Christ. You're free in Christ. You're chosen. You're holy. You're loved. You're blameless. You're forgiven. You have God's favor. You've been sealed with God's spirit. You're alive in Christ. You're seated with him in heavenly places. You're God's workmanship. You're a member of the body of Christ. You're a citizen of heaven. And nothing in all creation will ever change any of that. Happy Mother's Day. Now let's go to the funeral dirge. If our eyes are merely on this world... There is plenty to be discouraged about, right? Even this week, across our news feeds, we read about declining fertility rates and declining church membership rates and cultural institutions being further aligned against Christianity and race relations seemingly never-ending getting worse. And just the sheer speed of it all, it feels like a coming collapse. You know why it feels like a coming collapse? Because it is a coming collapse. Yes, yet, as Alistair Begg wrote in an article titled this week, Welcome to Exile, 
it's going to be okay. He writes, perhaps it's only in the last few years in the United States that we finally faced that what the Bible says is true. In this world, we really are sojourners and exiles. That reality has been clouded and obscured by the size and legal protection of the church in most of the Western world. But this world is not actually our home. We are not supposed to settle down here. We're not supposed to expect the church to be large, influential, and respected. Christians are increasingly going to be seen as different, and, and not in a good way. We are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and comfort. The next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism. And that's okay. After all, that's been the reality for most of God's people through most of history. How will we handle this onset of persecution? How will we handle the, the reality that some of us will lose our jobs because of our commitment to our Christian faith? How will we handle the persecution against the church and the perhaps threat of closing of public worship? Will we give up or will we just get really mad? Neither of which is good. One of the ways that God helps us and helps the persecuted churches to whom revelation was originally given to persevere is by reminding them that this fallen world is going down. It's coming to an end. We're going to talk about why that's such good news at the end of the sermon. But what we read in Revelation 18 is a requiem. It's a funeral dirge. It's a song of lamentation and sorrow over the demise and destruction of this world in its present condition of fallenness and sin. It's portrayed symbolically as Babylon, that great Old Testament city of sin and wickedness and all that personifies anti-God. The Old Testament background for chapter 18 of Revelation is found in the prophetic dirges in the Old Testament, like the fall of Tyre in Ezekiel 26 through 28, and of Babylon itself in Isaiah 13 and 14, and Jeremiah 50 and 51. This song in Revelation 18 has been sung through the ages by those who gave their all, their everything to this world, only to be sadly disappointed by its results. And so what we're going to do this morning for this Mother's Day is we're going to attend a funeral service. We're going to attend the funeral service for this fallen world. We're going to read an obituary. We're going to hear the eulogy. We're going to sing the songs. And we're going to stand at the graveside. And we're going to see why all that's really good news for us as the church of the living God. So number one, let's read the obituary. In verse one, we read, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So John sees this other angel sent by God who has great authority, so great that the earth is made completely bright by his appearing. And he has a great announcement to make with a mighty loud voice. And that announcement is the top of the obituary, Babylon's dead. Babylon is dead. This proud and evil system of worldly desires, lust, pleasures, priorities is finished. 
though this is a future event that's being pictured, it is stated in the past tense. Fallen. It's already fallen. It's gone. It's almost as if the future has been moved into the present to portray what is really going to happen in the future because the fall is certain. There's no way out. The repetition of fallen, fallen is an emphasis of certainty and finality. Sign, sealed, delivered, settled. Reality. Babylon is fallen. We see in verse 2 that this great city is now nothing more than a haunt. It's a home for three things. Demons, that is unclean spirits, unclean birds, and every unclean and detestable beast. All that's left is a vacuous trash heap with a few tumbleweeds of uncleanness rolling through Sin City. Rather than the honorable Garden City that we will read about in Revelation 21 and 22, for God's people, Babylon has become a wasteland. It is a desolate, demonic wasteland that is completely devoid of any image of God in it. And then in verse 3, we see how it was once so different. Verse 3 says, For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This used to be party place. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. The nations were, were used to be drunk from her idols. The kings and the rulers of the earth once crawled in bed with all the god substitutes that were offered in Babylon. The merchants of the earth were seduced by the alluring power of a luxurious lifestyle that was offered to her. The people of the earth consorted with the whore of wealth, unaware of her infections and all of her fatal diseases. But all that's left now is a corpse gathering heat on the concrete. That's the image. And it's a hideous image. But that's the obituary. Babylon's dead. And it's in the process of dying. And it will eventually die. So let's come to point number two. Let's enter, now that we've read the obituary, let's enter into the funeral service together, sit down, and listen to the eulogy. After the obituary is read, the lesson of the life of Babylon is applied to God's people. Here's the sermon that the Holy Spirit gives to the Apostle John to preach to us as God's people. In light of this obituary of this fallen world that is coming, here's our lesson. Verse 4, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. The lesson, the eulogy, is clear. Don't be involved with her. Don't hitch yourself to a sinking ship. Don't put all your riches into a dying investment. It's a call for God's people to come out, to separate themselves from this evil world system. And it's made clear that to fail to flee will result in two things. Taking part in her sins and sharing in her plagues. In other words, if you don't choose to separate yourself out of this evil world system, not at all meaning you leave the world, right? Jesus made that abundantly clear in John 17. We are not to leave the world as if that were even a possibility, but we are to remain holy 
committed to Christ in the midst of the world in which we're called to live. But we're not to take part in its sins so that we don't take part in its judgment. That's the clear implication. Now, this command of coming out or removing yourself from this world has clear Old Testament roots. Isaiah 52.11 says, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Jeremiah 51.45 adds, Go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. Verse 5 explains verse 4. Her sins are heaped high as heaven. Literally, this fallen world of Babylon stinks to high heaven. And she's not forgotten or unnoticed by the Lord. God has remembered her iniquities, we read in verse 5. He sees and knows all that this woman has done. So the word for God's people is clear. Share in her sins, share in her punishment. Young people who have yet to come out and cling to Jesus Christ, there's no neutral ground here. You're going to live for yourself, and you're going to live for the world, or you're going to live for Christ. You can't do both. You can't straddle the fence and say, well, I'm going to have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. Christ will have none of it. Christ said it. Either you're with me or you're against me. Period. All in, 100% or 100% out. None of this cultural Christianity, which will be squished like a bug in the coming decades. But real Christianity, real commitment to Jesus Christ is the only thing that will get you out. Stay with her, you suffer with her. Her sins are piled up to high heaven. They've reached heaven's doorstep. You'll be right there too. God is fully aware what the sins and iniquities are and who has committed them. God says, as Jeremiah 51 is in the background, we would have healed Babylon, but she would not be healed. Forsake her. Let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. But here's the good news. There's another city that's coming that we're going to read about, Lord willing, in the weeks to come, whose builder and maker is God, that is infinite and unstoppable and is coming because Christ left the tomb and was raised victorious from the dead. He is bringing with him a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. And you can be there forever in that place. But you've got to come out here. You've got to come out of this world to get into that world. And the way you come out of this world is by clinging to Christ, by following the Lamb wherever He goes, by not giving in and giving up, but clinging to Christ and being, defo- and being willing to follow Him whatever the cost is. And it is a cost worth paying, isn't it? I mean, if for this life only we've hoped in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. Get on with it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if this is true, 
If this world is coming apart at the seams, which you don't need the Bible to prove to you, just look around. Things unravel. Nations come, nations go. States come, states go. Countries come, countries go. Sex, money, and power in the gods of this age rage on. This world has fallen. But if you will identify with Christ, Revelation 1, 4, and 5 will be true of you. You will be freed from your sins by his blood. (laughs) Isn't that a beautiful picture? All my sins paid for. Free completely. Freed truly. Freed ultimately. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. We will be ransomed, bought, purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to belong to him. We see in verse 6 that God will pay back Babylon for all that it's done. In fact, she will receive double for what she did. The idea literally is double the double. It's the idea of fully, completely, totally. The idea of rendering double for one's deeds is not the idea that God is unjust, right? That would be wrong. How would it be just of God to repay somebody double for what they only did single? That's not what it's saying. He's saying full measure, completely. The punishment will be exactly what it deserves. Nothing more and nothing less. In verse 7 and 8, we get the conclusion of the eulogy. And it's such a sad story. Look at it. Verse 7, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury... So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. The opposite. She was once wealthy, she's now going to be poor. She was once rich, she's now going to be afflicted. She was once living in pleasure, she's going to live in torment. Since in her heart, she says, and here's the heart of sinfulness, I sit as a queen. I am God. I am no widow. And no mourning I will ever see. You see the pride and the self-reliance there. And then verse 8 we read, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. That means quickly. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So her sin demands righteous retribution because of her self-glorification, her sensuous luxury, and her prideful arrogance. Her boast recalls, Ancient Babylon's boast in Isaiah 47, where the Bible says, You said, I'll be a mist- I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember therein. Now therefore hear this, you lovers of pleasure who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. Wow. Who say, I am. I'm God. There's no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children, to which God essentially responds, wait and see. Oh, yes, you will. Wait and see. Because of her boast, she will receive in a single day the plagues of death and mourning and famine. She'll be burned up with fire. That's the eulogy. The obituary, she's falling. She's dying. The eulogy, come out while you can. Come out of her. Third point, the songs. Now we come to the points in the service, the funeral service, where songs are going to be played. We've heard the obituary, we've seen the eulogy, or heard the eulogy, but these songs are not songs of joy. These are songs of lament. Now that the obituary has been read, 
and the lesson or the eulogy has been given, the congregation of unbelievers attending the funeral rises up to sing. However, the song is not one of joy, but of sadness. The earth dwellers, those who live for the priorities and the values of this world, who hated God and loved Babylon, suddenly all that they have lived for, all that they have pursued, is gone in a moment. It's more than they can bear. Now there are three verses for this song, each sung by a different group of people who are in attendance at the funeral. There's kings in attendance at the funeral. They go first in verses 9 and 10. There's businessmen in attendance at the funeral, verses 11 through 17, they go second. And then there's the sailors who attend the funeral and they go last in verses 17 through 19. And they are each weeping and they are each mourning over the fall of their idol, their God, their prostitute that let them down. So let's look at each verse. First verse, the kings in verses nine and 10, we read, They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. They're singing. For in a single hour your judgment has come. See, the rulers of the earth went to the bed of the prostitute and they were intimate with her. And what she offered they wanted and gave their lives to. She satisfied their earthly desires with her idols and they lived in luxury with her. Her destruction, called the smoke of her burning, causes them to weep and to wail. The one that they once called lover, they now remove themselves from. They will stand far off in fear of their torments. They do not run to her rescue because they were only using her as she was using them. They're mad because she didn't pay up. But she had never had any intention of paying up. The fallen world only takes and takes and takes and takes. It never gives. Never gives. But fearing now of getting too close, lest they be consumed with her destruction, they sing their song of lament. The famous city, great and strong, Babylon, is reduced to ashes by our God in a moment. Like the magnificent twin towers, or the wor- of the World Trade Center. This ungodly, Christless world system of idols and wickedness comes crashing down in no time at all. What they live for is suddenly taken from them. What they trusted in is suddenly gone and gone forever. These rulers were played. But they're not the only ones. Second verse, the businessmen. All the merchants of the earth, the Wall Street wizards, All that they can do is weep and mourn for her, verse 11, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Malls are empty. Shops are shut up. They never saw it coming. In verses 12 and 13, we are given 29 items of value and wealth that that fall into seven different categories. Number one, you've got precious metals and stones. Number two, you've got fabrics for expensive clothing. Number three, you have all kinds of ornaments and decorations. Number four, you have fragrances. Number five, you've got foodstuffs. Number six, you have animals. And number seven, you have humans. The stock market has crashed. No return on their investment. They are all bankrupt. All their delicacies and splendors lost. Indeed, all they have lived for is gone and lost, never to be 
found again. And lest we think that our particular country's original sin of slavery was not beastly, behold, Revelation 18. The buying and selling of human beings for the sake of economic advantage is part of Babylon. It's not a part of God's kingdom. And so we see here all this, all this that was built on the back of Babylon, all this economic wealth and, and power and influence and beauty and all this stuff that was shoveled out to the people. Buy this, buy this, get this, get this. In the end, the businessmen have to go and declare bankruptcy because all their delicacies and all their splendors are lost. Indeed, all that they have lived for is gone never to be found again. Just like the kings of the earth, the merchants will stand far off in fear of her torment, verse 15. They will continue weeping and mourning aloud. Like the kings, they will cry, alas, alas, over the great city. You once were so beautiful. You were once so glorious. Yet they are amazed that something so great Something once so powerful, something once so rich, something once so luxurious could be laid out in a single hour. No one ever anticipated anything like this. Third verse, sailors, verses 18 and 19. A third and final group of singers, all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade on the sea, join the kings and the merchants. And like their earthly companions, they stand afar off, and they cry at the sight of destruction in verses 17 and 18. And then they ask this question, what city was like that great city? This is reminiscent of the praise that's given to the beast in Revelation 13, 4. Look back there quickly. Revelation 13, verse 4. Remember how the beast got people in, in the beginning anyway? By showing how great it was. Verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And now we see this once Herculean figure of strength and resolve and power being whittled down to an anemic person sitting in a wheelchair on a breathing machine, getting ready to die. Who could have imagined this? She was so glorious. She was so beautiful, and now she's gone. She was so rich. Now she's in ruins. She was everything. Now she's nothing. Like the others, they weep and mourn as well. And further, they, according to verse 19, they throw dust on their heads, which is a sign of greater mourning. It's an outward sign of their sadness. We see Old Testament prophets doing this when they are repenting over the sins of the people. But they say, alas, alas, for the great city, we grew rich by her wealth, but in a single hour she's been laid waste. Isn't that a sad, sad story? Imagine sitting in the funeral and hearing one person after another stand up and wail and weep over their wasted life. I blew it. I blew it. We wasted it. She's nothing. They're tearing their clothes. They're throwing themselves on the ground. They're screaming. Because they had one chance and they blew it. One chance. No do-over. One chance. One life. No do-overs, friends. One life. One chance. And this is it. Now the funeral closes. Casket gets closed. Paul bears come forward. 
Wheel the casket out. Obituary's been given. Eulogy's been heard. Songs have been sung. Now it's time to go to the graveside. And that's where John takes us in verses 20 through 24. The funeral service closes with one final scene. As the casket lowers into the grave, a mighty angel appears and throws a great millstone into the sea. It plunges to the bottom, never to be seen again. The great city will be violently thrown down and will be found no more. She's gone forever, no record, no memory, forever erased. And a chill begins to roll across the graveyard. The music ceases. The harpists, the musicians, the flute players, the trumpeters will be heard in you no more. Song and dance all stop because there is nothing for the earth dwellers to celebrate any longer. An eerie silence envelops the fallen world and there is no rejoicing. Look at the middle of verse 21. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. No more weddings. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by her sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all have been slain on the earth. No more, no more, no more, no more, no more. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. No more rebuilding. Craftsmen no longer make their crafts. The sound of the mill and everyday labor stops. The sailors get off the ships and let them sink in the midst of the ocean. No one works. Industries at a standstill. The economy's collapsed with an economic depression unlike anything the world has ever seen. No one will have to turn out the lights on Babylon because the light of the lamp will shine in it no more. Darkness will drape the destroyed city as she's abandoned and forsaken. No one will want to visit her. It will become a proverbial ghost town. No one parties here anymore. It's dark, all dark. The hope of new life, a rebirth, is not in her future. No one invests in that property. It'd be a poor investment. It's only going to go down in value. All the nations were deceived and led astray by her seductive magic. No one's heading to their, her wedding chapel anymore to get married. Weddings are a thing of the past. Babylon bewitched the sailors, bewitched the businessmen, bewitched the kings, and led them into destructive foolishness. And all they can feel is profound resentment. Notice something at the end of chapter 18. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. This has been a recurring theme as talk about this world and how it's judged. Why is it judged? It's judged fundamentally because of its great sin. But one of its greatest sins is in the fact that it has persecuted and killed God and his people. Tried to kill God, but certainly killed his people. To set yourself against the Lord and his anointed and against his people is to commit a great, great sin. We see this also in chapter 17, didn't we? When we, we, we saw that in verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. 
And she was holding up a cup that was full of saints' blood. And in a sense, she had gotten rich on the back of, of seeking to kill the church. In her, in Babylon, were the blood of the prophets and the saints. The blood of Christian martyrs that ran through the streets has continued to run through her streets around the world for more than 20 centuries. However, this assures the suffering, persecuted churches of Asia Minor and the suffering and persecuted brothers and sisters that we have around the world right now and the increasing suffering and persecution that will likely come to the church in the West in the decades to come, we are assured that that day will not last, that this world will come to an end, that our cries for justice will be heard and God's people will rejoice. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Finally, Revelation 6.10 prayer has been answered. What was the prayer? Look back there. Revelation 6.10. Remember when at that point in Revelation when the martyrs are being killed and they're crying out for justice? What do they say? Revelation 6.10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? They kill us and they get away with it. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Revelation 18, no longer. Done. Complete. Finished. Now, Perhaps we don't feel this as keenly. I mean, we can read this kind of stuff and be like, wow, that's, that's, that's kind of that's heavy. I mean, you've got the saints rejoicing over, over the, the defeat of Babylon, and they're thrilled because finally their blood is being vindicated. You know why we don't feel that as strongly? Because your kids haven't been killed for Christ. Your family members haven't been taken to jail for Christ. If you had that happen, you would rejoice that finally justice has been given. Brothers and sisters, we have church members that are part of the bride of Christ all around this world who know nothing of our privilege, have known nothing of our protections, have lived under far more beastly and aggressive governments than we have in recent years. I came across this this week some pre-baptism questions that are offered to incoming church members in a church in South Asia. You want to hear what they ask their baptism candidates before they get baptized? Here's appropriately seven questions. Number one, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your parents? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village of those who persecute you forgive them, and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? And are you willing to die for Jesus? And if you answer yes to those questions, you'll be baptized. And if you can't, you won't be. Because you are not a Christian. It's what a Christian is. In the article from Alistair Begg that I referenced at the beginning of the sermon, he recounted that in the 1920s, 
Lord Reith established the British Broadcasting Company, the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, and he served as its first director general. He was some, a somewhat severe man, Alistair Begg writes, from the highlands of Scotland. And if anybody knows about severe men from the highlands of Scotland, perhaps Alistair does, not that he's a severe man. As the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 1960s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Lord Reith that the world was changing and that the BBC did not need to continue with its religious programming. People were no longer interested in religion, he said, and the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Lord Reith, who was six foot six, <laughs> told this young man, sit down. And then he stood up and said, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC, my friend. And you know what? It will. The church, according to Revelation 18, the church will stand at the grave of every human institution. It will stand when the BBC dwindle and die and when CNN and Fox do as well. God's kingdom will stand when every organization and institution and empire meets its end. The church will be standing. So when we find ourselves complaining about everything or looking back to the good old days and worrying about that the church can't survive the empire of an aggressively secular post-Christendom? Let's put this in our pipe and smoke it. Okay? Let's, this chapter is a poison pill to that thinking. It will free us from angry venting or panicking. So let's repent, brothers and sisters, if we put too much confidence in Babylon. We all did, we all have, we all got some of it in us because we live in the midst of it. So let's repent and turn again toward prayerful, humble, confident, calm belief in our sovereign God. And let's recommit ourselves to the one institution that will stand at the graves of every human institution, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed when we read sober words like this. We are reminded that we are living in the midst of a world that is dying. The Apostle John, not only in the book of Revelation, but in his first letter, said that the world with its desires is passing away. And so, Lord, help us to heed his words when he said, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not set your heart upon them. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world, with its desires, is passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Help us to recommit ourselves this morning to doing the will of God. We ask in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus, who did it perfectly for us so that we might be freed from our sins by his blood, ransomed and forgiven. We want to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. Give us grace to do that. In your name, amen.